Hello and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. While a good review and rating won't increase our chances of being found or being featured on a podcatcher like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it will potentially help increase the odds of someone who does find the show for the first time thinking that clicking play will be a good time investment for them. And it's something you can even do while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, we're going to be talking to cinema historian and UC Santa Barbara Film Studies professor Ross Melnick about his recently released book, Hollywood Embassies, How Movie Theaters Projected American Power Around the World, available from Columbia University Press, as well as what it's like to create an accredited university class on 1980s cinema. And finally, Ross will be my first guinea pig for a new segment I'll be introducing on this episode where I will ask a film scholar or filmmaker to give me five movies from the 1980s from any genre in any country they feel does not get the kind of attention those movies deserve from modern audiences. And for the record, Ross did not share his list with me in advance, so as I write and record this intro, his titles are a mystery to me. If you love movies and love movie theaters, Ross Melnick is someone I think you should know. I first became aware of Ross in the early 2000s when he and his partner, Patrick Crowley, created the Cinema Treasures website, which could be described in a 1980s high-concept way as the IMDb of movie theaters. In 2004, Ross and co-author Andreas Fuchs published their coffee table book, Cinema Treasures, A New Look at Classic Movie Theaters, which examined the cultural and industrial history of theatrical motion picture exhibition in the United States from its humble beginnings in the late 19th century up to the early 21st century. The book was lauded by Leonard Malton as a treasure and was named as the Theater Historical Society of America's Book of the Year in 2005. Both the book and the website are both regularly utilized by myself, both for personal memories of theaters long gone and, occasionally, as a research tool for this show. In 2012, Ross published American Showman, an incredible 600-page tome about New York movie theater impresario Samuel Roxy Rothafel who helped to create the lavish movie theaters of the 1910s and 1920s that helped to make the movies a national pastime. And in 2017, Ross was named an Academy Film Scholar by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, one of only two scholars who were bestowed this honor by the Academy that year, which came with a grant that would help him finish the new book. I finally got to meet Ross in person in October 2009 when he gave a series of six lectures over six months for members of the California and Nevada chapter of the National Association of Theater Owners, which covered the history of motion picture exhibition and included a vast number of rare pieces of movie ephemera, from a Vitaphone record from 1928, the first year of synchronized sound in movies, and an exhibit of most every format of film used in theatrical exhibition over the first century of cinema. I'm proud to call Ross a friend, and I'm also very grateful that he took some time out of his very busy schedule to spend a little time to talk to me. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Ross, which was recorded over three sessions in late June and early July of 2022. You've just released your third book, Hollywood's Embassies. Uh, you've written extensively about movies from the point of view of exhibition, first with your 2004 book, Cinema Treasures, a beautiful coffee table exploration of the various movie-going eras. 
and the theater's audience loved and loved to hate. But then in 2012, he released American Showman, a nearly 600-page tome on the life and career of famed early 20th century film exhibitor Roxy Rothfell. And now Hollywood's Embassies, a sort of cautionary tale about how local cultures could both embrace and sometimes violently attack American movies and cultures. How did you come to arrive on the topic of Hollywood's embassies? Well, ironically, and first of all, thank you for having me on your amazing podcast. Um, Ironically, this actually came out of the research I was doing on Roxy. And by full admission, I should say that the idea for Roxy came up in 2002, and the original idea for this book came up in 2003. So even though I began working on it in earnest in 2012, once the American Showman book was over, I've actually been working on this for almost 20 years. And the reason that I came up with this idea was that I was researching Roxy and was suddenly noticing that a number of his employees were being sent to Paris. And I was trying to figure out why would MGM and Lowe's send their employees to Paris to a movie theater overseas in 1925, 26, and 27? It didn't make any sense. And what I discovered was that Gaumont and the French company and MGM had made a deal uh, whereby Gaumont would allow Lowe's and MGM to operate its theaters as well as its distribution operations in the mid to late 1920s. This led me to, okay, so MGM was doing this in uh, in France. Then I discovered Paramount, of course, opened its own cinema in, in, in Paris, Le Paramount. Then I was looking at the London MGM cinema and the London Paramounts. And then over the p- period when I first began poking around, this is in the zeros or the aughts, if you will, I started realizing this was actually a much larger expanse of time. And actually, I used the Cinema Treasures website to track down some of these names. Where were all the Paramounts? Where were all the Metro cinemas and the Metro theaters? And so as I began the list, I started in 2011, 2012, uh, once the American Showman book was off to the publisher to start working on this in earnest. So I think in the beginning, I had about 12 countries. I was aware of about, you know, that Fox and MGM and Paramount and Warner Brothers had theaters in about 12 countries. And then over the last 10 years, I would discover MGM cinemas in Trinidad. And then I would look, suddenly there was a Fox Theater in Lima, Peru. And so it began this long expanse. And so it was a sort of a joke between me and my publisher. We would meet every year at at the National Conference for lunch. And he'd say, well, what's the number up to now? And I'd say, well, now we're at 22 countries. And so it began this long kind of march. And so, you know, I really had to discover in a way how to contain this huge history. Um, The book stretches from 1923 to 2013. The book stretches over 36 countries. And so originally I had this idea that I was going to do it chronologically. I was going to sort of do it, you know, we'll go through the 20s and the 30s and you'll kind of see how this expansive history grew. And then that way you'd be able to talk about all these things happening synchronous. And what I discovered was that that was a really complex way of doing it. It would just end up being kind of lists and now they're here and now they're there. And what started showing up in my research was that if you want to really understand what Hollywood was doing overseas, you had to understand it regionally. So it made much more sense to talk about how Hollywood would construct a region, even though they were completely different, you know, as if like, you know, uh, Paramount's operations in China would be the same as Japan. And yet they would appoint, a, 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 you know, a, a head of the quote unquote Far East. They would appoint a head of Australasia, even if their operations in Australia and New Zealand were completely different. And right. so they constructed these regions. So in a way, it made a certain amount of sense. So the book, as it is now, is organized regionally, but then within those regions, it has a kind of chronological sweep. And you would actually travel the world over the course of 10 years to not just visit the theaters, but find additional research. And if I remember places like the uh, uh, Cinematheque Francais, if I remember right, 
Yes, I went to the Cinematheque Francaise. I went to um, you know many of the Cinematheca Brasilera in in Sao Paulo. So you know there really was a and the Tel Aviv Cinematheque. So the the book required a lot of on the ground research. There would have been even more. There were a number of research trips that were supposed to happen at the beginning of the pandemic, all of which I had to cancel. Um, so, but yeah, I was able to travel um, pretty extensively uh, to Brazil, to Italy, France, England, Israel. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, and more in order to try to figure out as much of this as you can, because what I discovered is that you need to go to the National Archives, the National Library, if there are national cinema, cinema archives, uh, I would talk to local executives, I would visit the theaters that were still there, I'd visit with people who knew and who had gone to those cinemas. So it was a really, um, it was a huge kind of undertaking, it benefited from uh, all kinds of historical societies, as well as governmental institutions, which had kept records on these things. Because like all theater research, um, there are virtually no corporate archives. There are virtually no personal archives. Unfortunately, you know, companies change, theaters close, and you end up doing a lot of um, kind of, um, you know, exterior research, if you will, to these companies. And that enables you to figure out what's going on. And so I discovered with every country, you had to attack it in a different way. Um, sometimes you would go into, you know, the, the state archives would have that information. And sometimes it was actually a matter of uh, picking up as much of the trade discourse that was happening. Sometimes it was as much of trying to understand the newspapers, what was going on. I did lean a lot on the National Archives of the United States and England, which actually contained a lot of the State Department and Commerce Department records, because one thing that was really important for both the British Foreign Office and the U.S. State and Commerce Departments was that these theaters operating overseas were really important. Uh, to the U.S. missions, because a lot of this was Cold War, a lot of this was post-World War II, and these theaters were, as I discussed, called them, the cultural embassies. They were the kind of front-facing, you know, privately run, but front-facing uh, operations, if you will, of the U.S. cultural mission. And the embassies and consulates understood that the that studios were sort of expressing the American ideals and American consumerism and American entertainment uh, on these, these very, very visible architectural edifices in the middle of uh, downtown streets. Mm -hmm. And so that gave um, them a lot of importance. And they were as much known by their architecture as they were known for their entertainment. And so they were celebrated as such and criticized. And as you mentioned, sometimes attacked um, for that very prominence. And so yeah. I was really trying to interest interested in that story. Yeah, because for me, one of the things that I've constantly found interesting as I'm reading the book is that when my wife and I travel overseas, whether it was Paris or uh, Scotland or wherever, um, Mexico City, I like to go to a movie in a foreign country. Now I'm usually seeing an American movie at a foreign theater, but for me, it's just seeing the architecture of how these various theaters, uh, there's a, uh, when we went to France in 2017, there were these uh, great old movie palaces in Aix-en-Provence, not, not a big town, but they had three movie theaters in there and only one of them had been built after like 1960, they and the way that one of the theaters was named after Renoir. Uh, but it was great that the three movie theaters in this town were actually named after after some of the most famous French filmmakers of the past century. And uh, I just love going. So when we go to Thailand in December, my wife is like, just figure out which theater you want to go to now, you know, and and it's a little hard to do do that research from California of what movie theaters are like in Bangkok. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I kind of envy you that you got to travel the world to do the research. Uh, but one of the things I love about the book as a longtime theater manager and 
movie theater lover is that even sometimes with my knowledge and expertise in, in the exhibition industry is that I'm still learning about these things in the history of the global film uh, exhibition industry that you are teaching me. I was especially intrigued by the concept of the shop window that you go into uh, at first in the British section, the first section of the book. Uh, for my listeners who haven't picked up the book yet, can you briefly explain what the shop window concept was like with the Plaza Theatre in London in the mid-1920s? So, you know, this is a kind of British trade nomenclature. The shop window was an idea that essentially the this uh, premier venue, this premier movie house, served as a kind of display. So that's why you think of it as a sort of shop window. It was a display feature, if you will, for not just how to... Um, present these films to the local population, but it also attracted exhibitors from outside London to come in to see how Paramount would put on movies at the Plaza, or later how the MGM would put on theaters at the put on films at the Empire. And so it was a display. So in other words, you were advertising your wares, you were attracting people into the premiere presentation. So especially if you think about these films when the theaters, theaters when they opened, 25, 26, 27, these are still silent movie houses. So presenting a film meant how you scored it, if there was life performance so a stage show hmm. uh, if how you would um accompany it with music how you might uh adorn it with newsreels and shorts in other words and then how the lobby was organized how the displays in the lobby were how the, how the marquee was advertised all, all of this was the kind of shop window for not just the films that paramount and mgm were displaying but also a kind of exhibition practice and a kind of movie going culture which hollywood was really interested in disseminating and influencing overseas. And there's a real business reason for this, which is that they really wanted exhibitors overseas to charge more money. Um, they Because if they charged more money, they'd collect more at the box office and that would of course give them more foreign revenue. So they had a real interest in kind of presenting this uh, very, very souped up, very kind of consumerist, exotic, opulent um, affair at these shop window cinemas. So these shop windows again had the twofold idea, which was that, number one, they were very exciting, very uh, popular amongst people who were living in London and would attract moviegoers. And then, of course, they were there almost like trade screenings um, to demonstrate to exhibitors both in London and outside once the film moved, because remember that they're giving the films to their own theaters first. So right. they would play exclusively at those theaters before they would ever go to Birmingham or Newcastle or anywhere else. So it really was a way for them to say, you know, you're waiting for, you know, uh, written on the wind, but you're not going to get it in this until later. But here's how we would present it. So that's the sort of uh, idea. Which is kind of what happened in America in the 30s and 40s and 50s, where a movie would showcase at the, if a Paramount movie would showcase at the Paramount Theater in downtown mm -hmm. Los Angeles, and it would play as long as, uh, as long as audiences were willing to drive downtown and deal with it. And then it would go out to the suburban houses after that so in the ways it was a little much like the american way of doing things at the same time because i know like gone with the wind would play at the you know at the downtown theaters for a year or two years or even in some places three years before it would ever go out past the company-owned cinemas so uh, another thing i find interesting in the book is that you spend nearly a century examining how American culture was being exported to other countries, not through the, just the films, but through the cinemas. And then we're ending the book with the trend of foreign companies like China's uh, Dailin Wanda, India's Reliance Media, Mexico's Cinelopolis, and South Korea's uh, CGV. 
entering the American exhibition markets and sometimes not just buying companies. Like when I worked for AMC in the early 2010s, uh, they were bought by the Dailin Wanda. And, but some companies like CVG were opening their own theaters, like here in Los Angeles and uh, down in Buena Park, where they're not just building their own theaters, but they're bringing you know, South Korean movies into these markets that might not otherwise be playing South Korean movies, much like how uh, theaters like the Kuo-Wa in, um, in, in the San Gabriel Valley were bringing Hong Kong movies uncut, uh, hopefully with subtitles, <laughs> So that, but two years, I was watching Jackie Chan movies two, two years before they would get picked up by New Line or Miramax and seeing them the way they, they were um, presented. So uh, why do you think the tables got churned in that last 15 year period or so? Well, you know, there's a couple of, of very obvious reasons why this happened. One is that, you know, in some cases there was a real growth overseas of, of, of circuits that were building very quickly. So Cinepolis did extremely well and they look for foreign expansion, not just in the US, but also in India and well beyond. Um, you also have, of course, Dali and Wanda's uh, expansive growth across the world, buying up AMC, Carmike, uh, Hoyts, Odeon, many others. And so you have a very, um, very popular, very uh, successful corporations that were growing up. The other thing is that the US film industry um, was no longer that interested. And I think this is two is a two-part answer. One is this that this whole discussion in the book um, is really a, begins in a very different moment for Hollywood, which is a vertically integrated Hollywood where they made films and they distributed films and they exhibited those films. Between 48 and 59, that was dissolved by the US Justice Department consent decree, which all the studios were divorced from theater holdings. But even so, the studios actually maintained the foreign holdings. That's the sort of strangeness of the of how this shook out, which is that it wasn't the uh, separated theater companies like Lowe's or Stanley Warner. It was actually uh, the studios which kept their foreign exhibition operations. But by the time you get into the late 1960s and 70s and even into the early 80s, almost all the studios had sold off their foreign theater chains. So they weren't that interested. So that kept Hollywood and American media out. And then I don't think it's unfair to say that the late 90s were very difficult for the theater business of the U.S. There was a lot of uh, bankruptcy reorganization. There was a lot of heavily heavy debt from building a large number of megaplexes in the late 90s. And so I think, you know, those kind of venture capital firms um, that had come in and swooped in and bought those companies had tried to sell them off, which is what happened with, with, with Lowe's and AMC. So I think what was what had been very attractive um, about the U.S. market was it was susceptible to uh, foreign investment. And so that meant that um, that what was actually happening overseas was huge growth in exhibition operations in Eastern Europe, South America, the Middle East and certainly Asia. So a lot of the growth markets were actually outside the U.S. And as those companies grew and they were very successful uh, very quickly it actually enabled, um, it facilitated the investment in the U.S. Right. So, and I think the other thing about that you were mentioning, uh, CJCGV, this uh, very successful, very, very successful South Korean company, which has theaters in South Korea and Vietnam and China, as well as the U.S. You know, the interesting thing about them is that they kind of put in the same model in a way that the Americans did before. They had this thing they call the kind of culture plex. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that the movie house is not just a place for movies, but it's a way of kind of, um, celebrating and enjoying uh, Korean cinema and Korean books and Korean food 
And so I think that some of them have adopted that and other ones have just recognized that um, there's power in volume and power in, um, you know, international operations. Having said that, that power that lasted until 2019 was completely upended by the pandemic. And so what looked like a great idea in 2019 was pretty tough by the time you ended up in mid-2020. That looked like a lot of debt and a lot of uh, real estate you had to figure out what to do with. And we don't have to go through the rest of that story. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's switch gears uh, to your work as a professor of cinema and media studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, my brother's alma mater. Uh, Your courses have included Global Film Exhibition, which about your book, uh, the history of the new wave films and international cinema from the 1989 to the present. And of course, the class that piqued my interest was uh, 151 AE, American Film and Culture in the 1980s, which you taught in the winter of 2019. So how popular was that class and what goes into creating a term length curriculum about 1980s? Well, uh, one thing I should say is we're on the quarter system. It's a little bit of minutia, but it's kind of important, which is that, you know, unlike a semester system where you might have 14, 15 weeks, I get 10. So I have to be very concise about these things. So the way that, um, first of all, the courses, I will say, is is very, very popular because I think that uh, Gen Z and before then millennials and certainly others, there's a love affair with the 80s. I don't have to tell you that. And I still have to tell Stranger (laughs) Things fans and anybody else that people love the 1980s. Um, I grew up in the 1980s, so actually the class was a bit of a dare, an intellectual dare for me, because I had always uh, experienced the 80s as a consumer mm-hmm. and as a child and as a teenager. Um, I think I was really motivated to do the class because a lot of people have a very negative opinion about 80s cinema, and it is disregarded, and I think it is often um, dismissed as not an important era of cinema. And I reject that certainly after teaching the class several times and seeing the absolute love affair that my students have with the 1980s and also seeing how important films were in the 1980s. And even the films that we sort of think were bubblegum popcorn movies, I have to say um, Hollywood and filmmakers and screenwriters were still trying to make a lot of commentary, even in those films. You look at the sort of critique of of corporations and greed and even kind of a corporate fascism that's in RoboCop. Um, written, co-written by Michael Miner and directed by Paul Verhoeven. So many of the films of the 1980s have social and other critiques built into them. So, you know, I can't always say that about our contemporary films, that if you watch them closely, there's always something that people are trying to, a message that people are trying to get within the within the popcorn. So I discovered in doing the 1980s class, that the way that I wanted to teach it, and, I, and forgive me if this is boring, but I have an American studies uh, undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. So the way that I approached it was actually a way of using 1980s films and to get into the kind of um, social, cultural, political moment of the of that era. And right. so what I decided to do was actually start in 1982. And the reason for that is that, you know, you can't just sort of decades don't turn on a dime. That, that doesn't happen. Number one. Number two, if you just understand anything about production development, films take a while to be greenlit. They take a while to be directed and produced and distributed. And so really 82 was this kind of liminal moment for me. When you look at a film like, um, like first blood, it's a seventies film with an eighties end with like an eighties, eighties ending, mm-hmm. you know? And so you start to see these, these, this pivot into these films. And so by the time you get into 83, 84, 85, you're starting to see the, the sort of influence of the Reagan era. Um, you see the decline of a certain kind of filmmaking in the 1970s. The films are 
somewhat shorter. They're becoming a bit more um, commercially oriented. You know, the narratives begin to change. But I, what I tried to do with that class is so we actually did, we would look at 1982, 83, and 84, and every week would be a different year. So we started in 82 and 83. We will look at two films from that year and try to decipher what's happening with um, race relations, uh, feminism, what's happening with the economy, what's happening with the morning in America or election, political news. And so seeing how filmmakers deal with these with these kinds of concepts. So even things like um, two back-to-back films about immigration, which is two films I'll talk about, talk about. you have some questions about films I showed, but uh, El Norte and Moscow on the Hudson are mm-hmm. really two fascinating films in thinking about immigration in America. Because they are very, very, and weirdly enough, they're they're very, very contemporary in terms of conversation. And I should say, University of California, Santa Barbara, where I teach, is an Hispanic-serving institution. So we are uh, a very diverse university with uh, a lot of students who come from many places, as well as students who are also coming internationally to study there. So it's a, these are films. Are, these are the kind of films that really do resonate um, in terms of their. Um, the conversation that they come up with in terms of of politics and um, and even things thinking about what has changed in the forty years since these films and what has not, yeah. and what are the kind of current themes. Yeah. So, um, what were some of the movies that you showed to your students uh, during the class? Well, I don't have the syllabus in front of me, but I will <laughs> say um, those are uh, those are certainly two of those films that that I showed. I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting is looking at. Um, the end of the 1980s, just as an example, you know, in 1989, you have Glory, Driving Miss Daisy, and Do the Right Thing, which if you're trying to figure out what's happening in the 1980s, I will say, you know, in the beginning of the 80s, there's a lot of conversation. We always, uh, in that class, look at a lot of music video, Mm. because I think you need to look at music video if you're trying to figure out what's happening in filmmaking trends. Certainly, you know, our recent conversation about Top Gun brings us back to Tony Scott and the kind of um, filmmaking aesthetic of the eighties, but you know, there's really very, very few, uh, black leads in Hollywood films in the early 1980s. And you start to see things change in the mid eighties. Um, and you have to get through films that you can't believe were made, um, films like soul man, which, um, still is just one of those films that you sort of stare at and go, um, I see what you were going for, but I think you may have made a mistake. And yeah. it's 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 just one of those films that, you know, and so um, we don't look at that film in total, but we certainly do look at a clip of it. Because I think one thing that's really interesting sometimes is to see the distance between the world you live in and the world that there was. And I think that's the hardest thing sometimes for understanding where films come from is understanding the world that they emanate from. What yeah. were the what were the kind of uh, social mores at the time? What were the sort of ideas? But anyway, moving into this idea of the end of this, um, there's it's really interesting to see those three films again glory driving miss daisy do the right thing only one by a black filmmaker but it's very interesting to see those three films in conversation with each other because you are starting to see the 1990s creeping in Mm -hmm. to the very end of the 1980s that reagan is leaving um and there's this conversation about what are the narratives and voices of the 80s that have been left out and i think that white filmmakers and black filmmakers are trying to um produce that information through cinema and you start to see things like um, Roger and Me, Michael Moore's film, which is coming in 1989, which right. is also giving you that sense of like, here's some things about the 80s we didn't talk about during the 80s. And now that we're getting towards the end of this, here's the things that that and this is, you know, people forget that Roger and Me is Warner Brothers. Right. And that Do the Right Thing is Universal. These are not indie film companies. These are major studios 
you know, distributing very, very socially relevant films in the late 19, in late 1980s and glory is, is Columbia pictures. So it's, it's kind of amazing or TriStar actually um, released by Sony. So you are seeing, you know, and driving Miss Daisy, I believe it's Warner brothers. So, you know, everyone is involved in this kind of um, I think the studios are starting to figure out that they need to begin talking to a new generation of filmmakers, goers. And they also need to um, begin to have different kinds of stories. I mean, I'm also interested in films like, uh, Dead Poet Society and Witness, which are both Peter Weir films, uh, who's a, a great Australian filmmaker coming to the U.S. And that those kinds of films are, you know, saying two different things. You know, Witness is a film that's really about um, this collision between the pastoral, the rural, and the urban. Mm -hmm. It's one of the thousands of critiques of the inner city, quote unquote, uh, in, in 1980s films. I mean, it's it's amazing how much cities are often seen as hellscapes in 1980s films. I mean, it's like even those sort of suburban films, like don't tell mom, the babysitter's dead. It's like, whenever the kids go into the city, it's like, it's just nothing but danger, you know? Yeah, um, the, the adventures and babysitting too. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's those kinds of, maybe I'm thinking of that film actually. Um, these are not films I show by the way. Um, but uh, those are the kinds of films where in the, when it's one of the crazy things about Ferris Bueller's Day Off that I've always enjoyed is that, the, that the um, the greatest film about an '80s rebel is a guy who goes to the mercantile exchange and the art museum. Right. You know, it, I just couldn't imagine a 2022 film about a about a rebellious teenager that everybody loves is like his day off is a French restaurant, the mercantile exchange, and the art museum. But and a, and a baseball game. And a baseball game. But you have to be yeah you, you have to be a man of the people somewhere um, yeah. while driving your convertible. Because yeah, um, I've talked about, you know, like the last days of the 80s being like the last bastion of non-corporate filmmaking. Because if you look at, I've already talked about uh, David Putnam's time at Columbia. Mm -hmm. But then you look at the, the the late 80s, you have Warner Brothers releasing uh, French films about jazz. And you are allowing Clint Eastwood to make a movie about uh, Charlie Parker. And then you've got Roger and Me. And you, it's like, these are films that no Hollywood studio has touched in 15 or 20 years, where now we have gone back to franchises, which was actually kind of big in the 60s and 70s and kind of slid off a little bit. And then you see the rise of the 80s. In fact, one of the reasons why Putnam got kicked out of, of Columbia was because he refused to make Ghostbusters 2 when the powers that be desperately wanted Ghostbusters too. So uh, for me, one of the great things about the 80s was always just how there was such diversity, even at the studio level, where movies like even into the early 90s, you get Hudson Caproxy is still Warner Brothers, but mm -hmm. you kind of lose that in the last 20 years once the, the clock turns over to Y2K. I mean, I think this is one of the things that's really fascinating about the early 80s. I mean, Cruising, mm -hmm. William Friedkin's film, Reds. Warren Beatty, um, Chariots of Fire is also Warner Brothers. I mean, th these films, th there's no studios that would release these films uh, at this stage. I mean, Cruising is one of those films that was, you know, extremely controversial when it came out. And, but it's a, in Reds, a, a, you know, an almost four hour, you know, epic about, you know, a, a journalist getting involved in, you know, the Russian Revolution. Yeah. And it's, it's a period piece. It's an epic. It's kind of a love triangle. It's one of those films that, you know, that, that, you just you you don't see anymore and you you won't because what happened with reds now is that reds would be a limited series 
um, uh, on Netflix. It wouldn't be a feature film. And so it just reflects not just a change in in filmmaking styles, but it reflects a change in corporate culture and reflects a change in how the changes to the American film industry, which having to do with either you know, corporate changes, streaming, viewing habits, et cetera, really do influence the way content is uh, produced and distributed and released. So that brings us to, this is the first time I'm asking somebody, you're going to be my guinea pig for this experiment. But I like, I want to start talking to uh, people who are film lovers uh, about the movies of the 1980s that they feel have fallen out of favor, either because of lack of availability or the gatekeepers spend more time talking about other more popular movies. So as I've shared with uh, my listeners, um, you have not given me your list. You've hinted at a couple things, Hmm. but I have no idea what you're going to say. So this is just going to be two guys who love films talking about 80s movies. So the list, this is the top five, Ross Melnick, 1980 movies that deserve more love today than they get. What's your number one pick? Well, I don't. Okay, let me preface this because I think you set it up in a way that I think is very smart, but I, I don't want to undercut what I actually think. Okay. Which is that, um, first of all, there was a list of like 15 films that I came up with, and I think they all deserve a certain uh, attention. I also think I wouldn't want to rank them like this is one, two, three, four, five. These are just, in my opinion, these are five films that I think if you haven't seen them or you haven't seen them lately, they have a certain resonance that I think is important to go look at. Okay. So I'm not going to rank them. I'm going to do these five just because I think they're worth talking about. Okay. The first one uh, is El Norte, 1983, Gregory Nava. Mm-hmm. Now, many people remember seeing it once. Many people haven't seen it at all. And I think if you're someone who's been paying attention to the, the country's long conversation uh, about immigration, I think this is a film that requires a lot, uh, a, a lot more viewing and even some uh, discussion. Because like another film I'm going to mention in a few minutes, I think the thing that's really um, interesting about the film is that it, it presents a complicated notion, uh, not just on the side of sort of American exploitation of workers who come, but why do people leave places like Guatemala to come to the United States? And it does that by personalizing the stories of, uh, of a brother and sister trying to make it to the north, to El Norte. Right. Um, it's also uh, a beautiful film. It's beautifully shot. Uh, It's got this kind of magical realism towards the beginning and then a very stark kind of realism towards the end. And I think that is a very um, I I think it's a it's a really a film worth watching. And I think it's a film that um, might open up a few minds and even a few hearts about for people who have just sort of thought about closing the border to everybody. I think there's something really about that film that still resonates. And I think what resonates is it's a very human story and its politics are secondary um, to the human story. So that's what I would say is the first one I would want to bring up. Is there more that you'd like me to discuss, Edward? No, I'm, I actually uh, was at a um, IFP seminar many years ago with Gregory Nava, the co-writer and director of El Norte, uh, nominated for an Oscar for Best uh, Original Screenplay. And one of the things that I found most fascinating uh, about this, because when I saw it, when it came out, I was 15 or 16. I wasn't quite in the mindset of screenwriting yet. Uh, And so it was fascinating to me to hear him talk about how he set the story up. Screenwriters are told, do things in a three act structure. And he actually explained that when he and his co-writer 
um, were working on the screenplay, they actually structured it as a four act story because of the way that he wanted to tell a story. And I went and rewatched the movie. I hadn't seen it in 20 years at that point. And cause this was like early two thousands. And I was just fascinated at how my perception of the movie changed now that I knew this one little thing from the mind of a screenwriter. It's like, oh, it's not set up like a traditional movie where you have specific breaks at specific moments. He actually broke it up into uh, smaller sections because that's what he felt the story needed. And I absolutely agree. El Norte is one of those movies that is absolute required viewing regardless of what's going on in the world. But it has a strange way of becoming relevant again and again and again, even though it's almost 40 years old. But yeah, I, I'd, and it's on the National Film Registry, so it was also, you know, deemed to be a culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant film. Um, and I think it is. It's one of those that, you know, it's also a, what I also find about it that's interesting is that it's an independent film before the independent film boom. Mm -hmm. So it's actually an independently financed film that was funded in part by PBS, but that isn't part of the kind of what we think of later as the sort of Orion Miramax searchlight. It's not part of that world of indie filmmaking. It's right. an independent film that was sort of seeking a, a way to be seen. And I should tell you, maybe this is dating myself, <laughs> but I actually got the way I saw this film the first time was actually in a in a um, middle school social sciences class. Um, so I saw this movie as quote unquote sort of cultural education. And then I returned to it many years later um, for its cinematic qualities. And so that's one that I think if you've never seen El Norte, um, I think for what you said, the three, the sort of the three segment structure that Nava wrote with his uh, ex-wife Anna Thomas, and then the way that the film is shot. It's a gorgeous film, much of it shot in Mexico um, to get that sort of local flavor. So there's really, um, it's really worth taking a look at. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. And it's also uh, just this little side note. Uh, Gregory Nava was one of the original creators of the uh, IFP, the Independent Feature Project, which is now know, known as giving out the Spirit Awards, uh, the independent Oscars, as it were, the night before the Oscars. But he wanted to share his experience of making this movie specifically with other independent filmmakers because there wasn't that big of an independent film community yet in the early 80s. So. Uh, there are so many reasons why this film is is so significant as a movie and as part of a movie culture. So I thank you very much for bringing that up because uh, it is a movie that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time that I just haven't figured out a way to get into yet. So uh, we will definitely talk about that movie more another time. That's a, it's a great film. And uh, this is a, a less heralded film, but I think it's also about immigration. And I think it's one to think about, but this time not coming from uh, Guatemala and Mexico, but coming from uh, what was then the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking of the 1984 Paul Mazursky film, Moscow on the Hudson, um, which <laughs> you're, you're, you're chuckling, which I, I think is appropriate because who would pick Moscow on the Hudson? Okay. One of the reasons I picked this film is because obviously we're having a little bit of we're speaking now in July of 2022. So we're having a little bit of a, a kind of a neo-Cold War return. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's on my mind. But more to the point was I was recently, for Cinematargers, coming up with a variety of really poignant July 4th Independence Day scenes. Mm -hmm. um, I think the 
opening of Avalon was in there. Um, there was the Independence Day Parade of 1990. The Independence Day Parade that's in Glory uh, right. from 1989. And the other one was the, is the coffee shop scene that's towards the end of Moscow on the Hudson. Now, at this point, and I should say this is uh, Robin Williams stars as a uh, defector who defects to the United States in New York. And then he's in, he comes to New York City at the height of New York's craziness, right? It's, it's not quite the 70s, but it's full of, you know, uh, dirt and crime and craziness and the kind of city still trying to find its, its way um, after the 1970s. And so on one hand, he he's, comes to the U.S. for all the promise, but then he finds all the realities that are inherent in, in our country. And he then, of course, meets uh, another immigrant played by Maria Conchita Alonso. He has a wonderful Cuban lawyer. There's this great scene at the end of the movie where he's sitting at a coffee shop. He's with his lawyer and he's talking about how, how terrible, how crazy this place is. And there's another Russian man who sees him at the coffee shop. And he begins to tell him off like that. He says, this is a great country. And suddenly you notice everybody in the coffee shop, uh, someone's from China, Someone's um, perhaps from, from the Dominican Republic. Everyone's from somewhere else, right? It's a classic New York scene. And he sees in that moment the kind of the whole promise and craziness of the United States. And it's it's another immigrant story, but from a different perspective. And the other thing is it's it starts out sort of as a very interesting drama, has these comedic moments. But I think it's a touching um, look at why people come to the U.S. And I think it's a 20th century vision of why people come to the U.S. It's come from probably a very Jewish-American perspective, a kind of European, why did people in the late 19th, early 20th century immigrate to the U.S.? And then many decades later as a filmmaker, trying to sort of understand why people are still drawn here and what is the magic of this place amidst all of the craziness. So it's this bittersweet look um, at, at America and New York in the 1980s. And I like it because we think of the 80s as, you know, the kind of um, the glitzy glam of Wall Street, um, John Hughes, this kind of, uh, you know, risky business, Top Gun, high, kind of a high octane 80s. This is a very, very different uh, tone. This is a very different sensibility. And it's the other side of the Yakov Smirnov 80s, you know, where everyone, if you just would leave Russia, everything would be great in the U.S. And Robin Williams has another take, uh, his character, which is that it's wonderful. He has these touching letters he writes home, uh, which he narrates. And there's the famous scene where he, you know, he's used to go, going to supermarkets in, uh, well, supermarkets, markets in the Soviet Union, and he gets coffee if they have it. Right. Um, so he goes to the supermarket for the first time, and there are like 35 different brands of coffee, and he has a nervous breakdown. Um, and he also learns about race relations in America, which is an eye-opener to him. And so it's a really interesting conversation. So right in the middle of the kind of height of the Cold War, um, any suspicion of someone who would be un-American, and yet Mazursky makes this movie that both challenges and affirms supposedly the greatness of the United States. So it's a very, very interesting film. Um, and I think it's also just a, another amazing Robin Williams performance. So I would say that's one to watch if you've never seen it. Uh, again, agreed. And the reason I was laughing when you mentioned it is that when I when the movie was being made, Paul Mazursky's lawyer was a family friend of mine, um, Jeff Taylor, who eventually became Mazursky's producer. I uh, worked on uh, he, he he was an associate producer on on Moscow on the Hudson, and then went on to produce uh, Moon Over Parador and um, and worked on Down Out in Beverly Hills. So when you said that. It brought me back to Jeff was like one of the people that 
I didn't lean on when I wanted to be a filmmaker that I should have. So, and I remember when Moscow on the Hudson came out, my interest in it was not just because I'm a Robin Williams fan. And at 16, I'm not quite knowledgeable about who Mazursky is as a filmmaker, but that's Jeff. I have, I have Christmas dinner. I spend Christmases and Thanksgivings and all these holidays with his mom at their house in Palm Springs. And so, and I get, and I've heard of this movie as it's being made. And then I finally get to see it and just have my little 16 year old mind blown at how subtle Robin Williams's performance is. It's even more subtle in many ways than Garp, which was really mind blowing. And if Garp's on your list, I'm sorry if I stomped over it, <laughs> but that's a, um, but yeah, it was like, it, it was like the movie for me that solidified Robin Williams as not just a comedy legend, but a great actor that Garp was not a fluke that, that he was building towards a better career, a bigger career. So um, I'm with you there. And it's actually one that I need to watch again. It's been way too long since I've watched Moscow on Hudson. It will reward you. I should say world according to Garb should have reminded me not to become a professor. That's the sort of ultimate lesson <laughs> of that film, but it's a great film. It's not on my, on my list because, um, but I actually think in a weird way, world according to Garb is actually more overlooked than Moscow on the Hudson, but it's still not here. Um, and I would say to the, your point about subtlety. Yeah. When you think about dead poet society where he has these, he's up and down, um, or even goodwill hunting, this is a tremendously restrained performance. That's, really worth watching. So Moscow on the Hudson. And I should say, since you brought up Paul Marzersky again, um, go for the triple bill, go for down, down Beverly Hills, which is really the perfect expression of mid eighties, Los Angeles. And then <laughs> moon over Parador, which is, I, you know, there's so many things I could say about that film. It's was such a uh, guilty pleasure as a kid. And I would say just a great Sonia Braga, Richard Dreyfuss performance, and also a strange Jonathan Winter. Uh, appearance, but really an interesting film, interesting premise, and um, yeah, and again, a Cold War film that's really kind of interesting, um, and a, a commentary, a deep commentary on America's politics in Central and South America. So, you know, Mazursky is what I love about his films is that he's he's that kind of um, sort of uh, soft political filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Like he gets his he gets his politics in very subtly. And just enough that you know where he's headed, but he doesn't make you, you know, he doesn't make you think, oh, this is all set up for my, for politics. It's a, it's a, it's really, uh, a interesting three films in a row, Moscow on the Hudson, Down Down, Down, Down Beverly Hills and Moon Over Parador. Um, and that's, I think those are the highlights of the sort of eighties career. He has this very serious and very incredible seventies and late sixties career, but the eighties, those three, it's really kind of dead on and enemies is a whole other conversation. Yeah. Right. And then, and then also if, if you go right before that, he did Tempest with uh, John Cassavetes, which is, if you look at what he was doing in the seventies and the early eighties, you go from Tempest to Moscow on the Hudson. That's about as far a <laughs> right turn as any filmmaker can make in their career and still be a legend <laughs> uh but it's just yeah it was it was the it was a great movie but it just came out at the wrong time in 84 uh, moscow on the hudson because we were you know in the grips of of reaganomics and reagan mania and he was riding high he was gonna win the his uh re-election that year um and it really had a lot of 
pointed barb specifically at the Reagan world and uh, those who I think might watch it today who weren't alive and conscious back then in the 80s will see it far differently than you and I will. But still, it's just one that if you want to understand where the world was in that time frame, that's a movie that gives you a very macro look at a specific point of view from just one person, but it's such an amazing point of view. I, I I'm with you there. Um, the, so I'm going to shift a little bit to another conversation about the Soviet Union, and this time it's to Reds, mm-hmm. Warren Beatty's Reds, which is um, you know you need to carve out a minimum of four hours of your life. Uh, three hours plus to watch it and maybe an hour afterwards to figure out how he was able to make it. Um, and then you have to know it has this incredibly long um, development. But for those who haven't seen it, uh, Beatty uh, co- uh, co-wrote it, produced it, directed it. And it's this um, sprawling epic about John Reed um, who covered the kind of uh, Russian Revolution. And it's got a great cast, Diane Keaton, uh, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty. So you're also, if nothing else, you know, these are three actors who were uh, at the top of their game um, working in this incredible, sprawling historical epic. But the thing that really, I think, makes it incredible is the interviews, the yeah. interviews that he conducts, the documentary interviews that he conducts with people who were there, who knew the players that the film depicts. And it provides a kind of guidance. You know, I hadn't seen it again. You know, it reminded me that I thought when I watched Interstellar, I kind of thought that the interviews that were conducted about the Dust Bowl made me think that Nolan had stared at Reds in making that film because it provides this kind of seriousness. It provides this this kind of um, melancholy and yet this this um, this texture to the film that what you're watching is from a real place and that the story is bigger than what you're seeing. And yet it's no bigger than these titanic figures, Eugene O'Neill and others who are involved in this film. It's it's a marvel. It's the kind of film you could tell was was began in the 1970s. This is the kind of film they didn't make let you make five years later. Oh, no. The studios wouldn't make that later. But in the early 1980s, you still had, again, you know, Chariots of Fire, Gandhi, Reds. They were still churning out the big epics, the, the kind of um, biopics, and these these films that were really much more attuned to the previous decade, and Reds is this is just this, um, you know. And a lot of people say it doesn't totally work. Um, that it kind of it sometimes it's a romance and sometimes it's a drama. I think it's everything, and I think it's also a testament to Beatty. You know, if you want to see a guy who's putting his um, his power in the industry at that time, his time, his effort, his money, his prestige on the line for a film that's really about you know, talking about what are the tenets of national of, of of communism. You know, what are other what were the what were the values of those people? Why did people in the nineteen tens on the American side? Why were they interested in this? What were the problems in America? So again, you have and sort of thinking about Moscow and the Hudson, you have this complicated conversation of this is a movie late seventies, early eighties. It's a nineteen eighty one release, um, but it's also about what is what might be wrong. You know, with the politics here that make, you know, uh, John Reed want to go over there and stare at, at, at Russia in that period. And then you have, you know, Paul Sorvino and Ashley Yerzy Kaczynski before he passed away and all these incredible figures who were standing in for historical characters. It's it's a it's just a it's just a um, 
it's a it's one of those epic films that they just don't make anymore. It's it's my favorite movie of 1981. And I'm saying that as both a 13 year old in 1981 and as a almost 55 year old many years later, I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I went to see Reds Uh, and to a teenager, a young teenager learning about this history that wasn't being taught in school. I don't think this stuff was taught at your school and I know it wasn't taught at my school and I, I grew up in a very liberal town. Um, I don't, not quite communist or socialist, but very, very liberal. And this is stuff that I didn't, I never learned in school. So, and as I get older and I learn more about the power Beatty had in the industry that he could get Charlie Bluthorn of Paramount Pictures, uh, a fairly notorious cheapskate uh, head of Gulf and Western who loved to buy companies left and right, but loved to nickel and dine everything. He got $30 million in the late 70s to make a three-plus-hour epic about an American writer in Russia during the communist revolution and got all these major movie stars. And then on top of that, decided, I'm going to interview a whole bunch of people who either were there or people like Studs Terkel, who are, you know, major historical um, studies of, you know, the way the Studs Terkel, that's where I learned who Studs Terkel was, was in Reds. And I started devouring his work in, outside of everything else in the movie. It's just like that guy, the way he told his stories in the movie. Um, I know I'm jumping off of my original thought, but just like this movie was was devastating to somebody who was thinking about maybe I want to be a filmmaker. That that can be a movie from a major studio in the 1980s. But then as you get older, you start to realize, well, he actually made it before Reagan was was elected president. He got it financed before this major shift and the conservative movement. And now to see that movie today and to think that somebody, you know, we talk about we Hollywood being so liberal and stuff like that, but this is outside of what even most liberals would be able to get away with back then. And just that that's how much power he had where he, he, he made what he made shampoo in 75 and then he made heaven can wait in 78. And then he made this in 81 He's like the biggest, one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And he spent a decade concentrating on getting this movie right. And if I'm remembering right, he was only the second person ever to be nominated for producer, director, screenwriter, and actor at the Oscars the same year. The first being uh, Orson Welles for Citizen Kane. And it's like, that's the level of expertise that Beatty had on just his second movie as a director and technically his first as a, as a sole director where um, he won the best director award that year. He, it should have won best picture because as much as I like chariots of fire and as much as I appreciate what Hugh Hudson did with it, reds was on a different level from everything else that came out that year. Um, I think you were, 
a lot younger than I was back then. Uh, so you, you were Not like that much younger and, and, and uh, you know, okay. Uh, I was born in 75. So yeah. So you were like six. I was six, but and I was, you know, but and I, I was 13 or 14. Yes. I was younger than you, but I will say this. <laughs> we watched this film as a, as a kid. I saw this film at least twice because my parents either rented it or owned it. And I remember it well. Um, and I probably was, I was probably 10 the first time I watched it and I didn't get it all. But the one thing I got from it was just what a dedication it took to make it. And I think if you think about all those awards that it was nominated for, et cetera, it's because everybody in the business knew what it would, how, how hard it was to make a film like this. Mm. And I think it's sort of number one, of course, you know, reputation and admiration within the business just for him. But I think it's also, this film is, it's like, as you just said, with Bluthorn, the ultimate capitalist made the movie about the, about the ultimate communist. Right. You know? and, and so it's just it's the dichotomy of the whole thing is the magic of if there is a magic of the movies, if there is a sort of like what's unique about America, it's that um, that that kind of that that exists, that this thing got made. And uh, it, it's 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 a marvel, you know, and it's it's one of those things, too, that the film, if you recall, takes time to actually go through the rallies. I mean, these are things that would be removed now from the, like they wouldn't get through the cut. Like you'd watch them on the director's cut. You know, yeah. the extended cut would have, you know, but they go and make the speeches. You actually watch them on the party floor making speeches. So, you know, whether you care about how common this this faction believes in this and this and other they do the party platform so you're actually you get this feeling that you are literally in that moment and that texture is what's amazing about the film it's not just watching Beatty do the biopic and watching the romance and the drama and the kind of the tragedy of 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 various things that happen in the movie but it's also that they really try to marinate you in the moment you know and that's what again those interviews do they put you back in a moment where people felt like the world was changing and that the world really was right. The 10 days that shook the world. It really was um, a transformative moment. And this was a transformative guy at a trans that this was this, this slice and all the people talking are telling you exactly that he was a man. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so on one hand they're they're kind of, he's valorized as all biopics do. And on the other hand, all the foibles, all the shortcomings, you know, yeah. all those things. And then Rob Reiner rips it off for uh, When Harry Met Sally brilliantly. Does almost yeah. the exact same thing. But, okay. you know, unless you're, you know, paying attention, you might, you might not even know that it's a it's a direct homage slash parody of what Beatty was doing. But, uh, but it okay. works. Yeah, oh. it works. Okay, next one. You next want one. Okay, now here's where I'm probably getting into some trouble. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it because I'd like to believe we're, we're at that moment where we can divorce the filmmaker from the film. But I will say, if you've never sat down to watch Radio Days 1987 from a certain director with the last name Alan, it's a film that's really unique. We don't make movies like this. Um, they don't make movies like this because the film is um, it's essentially an hour and a half radio play. It's a series of um, of vignettes, radio stories, structured around a film. Yeah, and you have this uh, this kind of this again. It's a period. Maybe obviously you can see where my head is at, <laughs> but it's a it's a period film, and it's a period film about family. It's a period film about connectivity. How does um, how does entertainment and technology connect people, and how does memory work? 
um, and what constitutes memories. And because the entire thing is a, is a kind of flashback memory, but then there's these incredible radio stories and there's um, some very early appearances. Danny Aiello has a, has a great one, but it's a fantastic um, um, kind of a, it's like a tone poem in a way to, to a bygone era of the thirties and forties. It's also a really interesting look at the American home front in the 1940s. And so if you can't get past the fact that Woody Allen directed it, perhaps you can at least try to uh, stare at it for how do you make um, almost, almost a kind of experimental film of using radio structure to con construct a kind of um, memory, one person's memory of what it was like to be alive in that period and how much the radio structured everything and how much um, people of that period recall not the television that they saw because it didn't exist or how much people remembered, um, you know, being on their, their iPhones, but how people were connected by this other device, which infiltrated everything and then creates a soundscape that ultimately constructs the film itself. Right. Um, I, I love Radiohead, uh, Radio Days. Sorry. I don't know why I said Radiohead. I'll edit that <laughs> out. But uh, if I was going to be talking about a Woody Allen movie from the 80s that uh, doesn't get as much attention, I probably would have said The Purple Rose of Cairo simply because of Very movie going of you. Yeah, uh, because of the movie guard thing. I actually got into a conversation with somebody a couple of nights ago uh, at a trivia game because what one of the questions was about Van Johnson, who has a small role in Purple Rose of Cairo, a small but memorable role. And it just, I I have Purple Rose on Cairo on DVD. I probably bought it 10 years ago and I still have not watched it. So, and, but just the whole idea of a movie character coming off the movie screen to interact with real humans and then have the actor who plays that character come to town to try to talk his fictional character to go back on the screen. It's, you know, it's, it's basically a much better last action hero, but with Jeff Daniels instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Last action hero is a hundred percent, you know, obviously riffing on purple Rose of Cairo, but do you, have you ever seen escape from Liberty cinema? I have not. And I, I've, I've got it on my list of things to do someday. There's your Polish uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, which actually references Purple Rose of Cairo <laughs> in it. And is a, this wonderful film about the fading days of censorship in late 1980s uh, Soviet Poland and about then suddenly Purple Rose of Cairo comes to, you know, Poland. And it's like a question of like what they can show. And once again, the actor leaves the scene and it's 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 a really interesting meta meta film you know you're already in a meta film now you're in a meta meta film and um and then in typical hollywood with last action hero which i enjoy to a certain extent for its kind of it has some great sequences of of being on the c 42nd street before it all got torn down and right. um there's a lot of kind of interesting ideas in that movie um but it's a film that obviously is very much reflective of purple of cairo but with of course a kind of Arnold schwarzenegger you know um, action sequence blown, blown into it. So it's a really interesting film to look at what 15 years, uh, 13 years actually, what 13 years can uh, can can bring you. Yep. Um, but yes, there are many films from that period, but I just think the reason I chose Radio Days is most people just haven't seen it. Yeah. The, radi the radio in and of it just takes people out and then it's just, it's, an, it's, an, it's kind of a non-linear film. It's not really following um, any one plot line. There are multiple plot lines that kind of intersect it's got a very slight Tarantino structure to it, if you will, where yeah. they come back together. It's a it's a really interesting film, but it's also one of the most sweetly nostalgic films 
um, I think any American filmmaker has ever made. All right. And your final film for this recording. I am leaving the United States and I'm going to Hong Kong for A Better Tomorrow. Now, look, A Better Tomorrow is not an unknown film. A Better Tomorrow is well known to anyone who cares about Hong Kong cinema, anyone who likes John Woo. But, you know, it's sort of my plug to say, please watch A Better Tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and it's the uh, Leslie Chung and, of course, the coming out party for Chow Yun-Fat. I mean, I think this is, if you want to see if you want to see what it looks like when a star gets born on screen, I think it's A Better Tomorrow. It's oh, yeah. also my favorite thing about A Better Tomorrow is that it is a male weepy. Um, <laughs> and so when I've shown it to students, I've always asked them to please don't laugh. Like they, they, they need, it's the younger generations because we've so drenched the world in cynicism um, and kind of sarcasm. It's hard for people to understand that the melodrama that John Woo means that's in this and the killer, it's that he means it to be exactly this dramatic and melodramatic and emotional. And I love the fact that he, it's both this incredible action film. It's a great uh, gangster film. And it's also one that is deeply about um, the brotherhood, right? This kind of bond between, between men and this, this, whole notion of um, honor and also just incredible action sequences, but it's also just fantastic acting. It's it's just, it's a fantastic movie and it's one that, you know, after the killer uh, that it kind of got left to the wayside and, you know, it, it's, I think it's the, if you didn't have a better tomorrow, we wouldn't have John Woo period. We wouldn't have Chow Yun-Fat period. So um, fantastic call. And uh, since we have a couple minutes left, why don't you just run down the other 10 films if you have them? Oh, well, I'll, let me see. I have the list here. Um, <laughs> okay, well, the, most some of these are very, very well known, but I still wanted to talk about them, which was, and I'll go through the list, They Live. Come on, they live. great John Carpenter. you got to watch that. Chima yeah. Paradiso, which is very well known, but mm-hmm. I still thought Witness, come on, a fantastic film. <laughs> These are all films that people have seen but like should watch again. And I have two others that I will mention at the very end, which are really interesting. The uh, Continuing on would be Amadeus. People just haven't watched that in a long time. Great English yeah. Foreman. Uh, I do think Dead Poet Society, one of the several Peter Weir films of the 80s that really deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this weird double bill of To Live and Die in L.A. and Cruising. Um, Cruising is finally out of the doghouse for a long time it was known as the most homophobic film ever and it's gotten this kind of um, it's been reanimated in a way that people are starting to sort of see it as this um, this very interesting film that's not quite as terrible as people remembered it so there's been some very interesting academic writing on it that I think you can now talk about it without um, uh, fearing its problems and I think To Live and Die in LA for mood and aesthetic and Willem Dafoe. Um, I was so tempted. I think I think to live and die in L.A. was my was number six. I just I have so many great things to say about that film because most people haven't seen it. And if they're thinking mid eighties Dafoe, they're thinking Platoon. Right. But I really have to recommend um, to live and die in L.A. Yeah, I actually did an entire show on to live and die in L.A. Uh, about a year and a half ago um, because it was the like the thirtieth anniversary, thirty fifth anniversary that week and uh that freeway where that 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 chase takes place on is only a few miles from my house and i regularly drive it to get uh brunch for my wife i in fact i even drove it today uh because it's the quickest way to get there from my house to there so it was i i to live and dial in la is one of my favorite undersung movies uh it, it was literally friedkin's last blast 
And it's sad to realize that the film was never that big of a success. Uh, and it's, it is absolutely a movie that deserves, uh, well, it's like the love. smart version of Beverly Hills Cop 2. You know, <laughs> Beverly, because they both kind of deal with like the LA oil fields and they both deal with this sort of counter Los Angeles that's, you know, that's not about extraction mm-hmm. and opportunity, but about exploitation and theft. And it's a very interesting film. The other thing I love about the film is that, like a lot of films that take place in, in Soho and New York, it really deals in emptiness, this kind of um, empty, like this sort of the solo sax the warehouse, the, like the, the idea that there's this, these emptiness spaces that I love about 80s movies where someone has a giant loft, someone can have an entire warehouse, and there isn't this, this kind of dirty clutter that the 70s were so great at creating. The 80s right. have this weird emptiness sometimes in the architecture that I love so much. And to live and die in L.A. is just sort of yeah. empty, empty spaces, empty buildings, and even the sort of sparse um, kind of s- soundtrack and score. There's yeah. just, sometimes there's this fantastic emptiness about 80s movies that I love so much. Um, anyway, so that's that's something that that's also really fascinating about To Live and Die in L.A. Yeah, and actually, I remember seeing To Live and Die in L.A. Uh, it might have been the Cinerama Dome, uh, but I don't remember. I do remember seeing it somewhere in Hollywood in, in October, November 85. And John Turturro shows up for one scene and it's like who is that guy he's he's this nervous ball of energy and he's drinking pepto-bismol the entire scene he's only got one scene and i think i became a john Turturro fan from his one moment in to live and die LNA. and then he's just started kept showing up in all these movies like and for the longest time it was hey that's the guy from to live and die in la and then you've got uh it's kind of started the resurgence of dean stockwell and just and I think it's the first time I saw Steve James, the great uh, the great uh, black exploitation actor uh, who kind of fell out of favor for a while and then kind of fell back into favor after it. Uh, and I honestly think it, it, it was Friedkin's last great movie. Uh, it just was sad to see him start to have a career resurgence again and then just kind of disappear. You know, without you know, critiquing other other directors, you know, it's interesting, you know, you, you look at some of the films that um, some of the great 70s directors made, Coppola and others in the 1980s. And, you know, some people just, it's, it's either there's a moment, there's the material, there's um, their own, what's only going on in their head or what the studios will, will green light. But it's interesting. There's a number of filmmakers who just that transition into the 1980s did not go as well as they would have hoped. Yeah, um, agreed. Yeah, and then and then you were talking about the other double feature with uh, with cruising. I I hate to say I've never seen cruising. Um, cruising uh, is one of the craziest films that um, a Hollywood star has ever been in. Yeah, um, it's a problematic film, but it is a it is an eminently fascinating film. Uh, it's the story of Al Pacino who goes undercover. Um, someone is killing gay men. Right. And he's a detective and goes undercover. But it, it, what it, what's interesting about the film is also what's problematic. It's its depiction of the community. There was a huge protest by uh, the gay community because of its depiction when it when it was being made, even in right. production. So at this point, it's now kind of being revisited as a very interesting film that kind of captures a moment of time. Um, there are just things you, in the film, you know, scenes in the film that 
Um, again, it's kind of a little bit like Reds. You can't quite believe um, Hollywood would make this film five years later or 10 years later. Mm -hmm. And it's a tribute in a way to, I guess, what freaking sensibility. And also that Pacino um, was ex excited to play this role um, in which I think his own, uh, the sense of whether or not he's a good guy or he's not is also up for grabs. Right. And it's just, there's a thousand interesting things I could say about cruising. Yeah, the only two things that I really know about cruising outside of it's a freaking movie, Al Pacino, undercover detective, uh, gay bars in New York. The only two things I know about it is that uh, one of my favorite L.A. punk bands, The Germs, uh, did some of the music for it. And if I remember right, appears in a scene in the movie and that James Franco made a little right. independent production about a scene that was rumored to have been shot for the movie that right. has apparently never been seen, but it becomes one of these urban legends. And before Franco fell out of favor, he decided, oh, this is, this is something I want to do. I want to make this 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 meta movie about a scene that may not have ever even happened. There's this period of film, and I think it's probably between, say, 79 and 82, um, which we don't consider the 80s because, as you know, just the way the development works, you know, you... You write something in 1979, it finally gets bought, it goes in production in 80, maybe finally comes out in 81, maybe even 82. So the whole notion of Reagan being elected and the shift from Carter and the shift into a new kind of decade, it, it's not going to be read in that early period. Right. So the films that are coming out there, and I, I've always sort of looked at First Blood as this liminal space because First Blood has some of the hallmarks of a 70s movie, but it turns into this kind of, you know, rugged individualistic you know kind of action film with a happy ending um in at the end right. so it's it's that it's that it's that moment you know that 1982 moment that shift and cruising is in the early part of that cruising is 1000 percent a 70s movie yeah it doesn't even know what I mean, cruising doesn't even know the 80s are happening other than the fact that it's being shot in this kind of very late 70s early 80s new york and so it's just it's just one of those films that you could place in an 80s list but only because of its release date. Yeah. It has no sensibility from that decade at all. Yeah. I, I did a show a couple of weeks ago about um, a Patrick Dempsey movie called Happy Together. It was written in the 80s. It was shot in the 80s. It was supposed to be distributed by MGM UA in the 80s. Uh, and then it finally came out like in 19, in like March of 1990. And, but there's absolutely nothing about the movie that is 90s. It is absolutely positively uh, day glow colored clothing and the way that people are. are it, it's absolutely an 80s movie in every way, shape or form, except the mm -hmm. fact that it came out three months or two little over two months after the decade ended. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And, and it's a fascinating movie because it's like the most unsarcastic late 80s movie about romance and love with that's just you know the, some of the characterizations stink but it's a fun movie to watch because it is so sappily sentimental and does not care and and it rejects the the sarcasm that was the that was going to be coming in the 90s so yeah i i understand how cruising could be absolutely a 70s movie with the exception of it was released literally in january of 1980 yeah, and the uh, see, Sex Lies in the Videotape is like basically almost a '90s movie that's released in the '80s. Mm. And then the film that I think is, I think there are many crazy films you can't believe were made 
because of some of the subject matter and what they did with it. But the movie that always just gets me like, I still just can't believe it. No matter how many times I see it, I don't watch it, but how many times I see the poster or I show clips from it as like, please never do this. It's Soul Man. It's mm-hmm. just always Soul Man. Soul yeah. Man is one of those movies you just you 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 struggle Why? to figure out how this got written, how this was developed, and how this was greenlit and then put into production and then marketed. Even in the ways it was which it was marketed, it, it's like one of those movies you just can't believe. So people will stare at you know other films from the nineteen twenties and thirties with with you know caution and anger. This is one of those movies that. You know, it's not going to get any better. This movie is going to continue to be um, a world stink- of suckage. Yeah, a giant <laughs> stinking fish on melting ice. It's just unbelievable, and I think it gets worse every year. Actually, I I remember when it came out. I played it at the Del Mar Theater in Santa Cruz. I saw the first, uh, and it was from uh, New World Pictures when they were making their last push into trying to be a, a mini major. And I remember getting the poster and the trailer for it. And there is C. Thomas Howell with an afro and blackface. And I and my 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 reaction was just, what the fuck? <laughs> and then, you know, when previews are are mostly programmed by the home office, you you play this trailer in front of this movie. You know, or a, you play trailers A, B, and C. So I and you don't have the internet. You can't go onto YouTube and watch a trailer. You have to see it in a theater. And it was like the home officer. Okay, put this in front of I forget made to order. And I watched the trailer, and it's just like, how did this get made? There, there has to be so many people <laughs> who saw. The I came up with the idea, who wrote the idea, who read the script at an agency or at a production company. Mm-hmm. So many eyes <laughs> had to see this script yeah. in 1985, 1986, 1987. Agents getting their clients to audition to be in it. And, and actors who were like, do I really need this job that badly? And James Earl Jones, who... who it co-stars in it. Yeah. It's like, you know, and there's that speech <laughs> at the end of the movie, you know, his roommate makes this speech, which is supposed to be, you know, a movie that has this sort of, um, I think it thinks it's very progressive. That's the other crazy part about the movie. And then he makes this speech and you're like, wow, you think that's fixing this movie? Mm-hmm. Like, this is the speech where it's like, oh, okay, so this whole setup is fine because here's the speech and the speech doesn't fix anything the movie is um it's just something and and i just to be clear i am absolutely not recommending anybody watch it no but i I am i will never recommend anybody watch it yeah not even not even in a sarcastic manner not even as a uh as a a relic of the 80s yeah absolutely do not watch this movie under any circumstances but what's so interesting about the film is that it was made and so that gives you a sense of just you know sometimes people say wow this you know something will come out and people say can you believe they made that or even movies from 10 years ago which are before the me too movement or before um black lives matter many other films and people will look back 10 years ago wow that's a deeply problematic film and of course right. in many cases they are Th- those films sometimes don't hold a candle to how pro- deeply problematic Soul Man is. Soul Man is a is a is a um, really the the top prize in many cases of like 
tone deaf Hollywood filmmaking for yeah. the last 40 years. Uh, yeah, I, it, it killed Radon Chong's career. It killed C. Thomas Howell's career and rightfully so for making such bad decisions. And I think the only reason why I didn't kill James Earl Jones career is because he was James Earl Jones. You know, it's like, how do you, he, he had already established such a track record before then that this is just considered a minor blip in his career, but it really and there did. has been a lot of conversation about it in recent years where even, I think even with some of the actors who said, look, we were trying to do this, we we're trying to do that, you know, and, and that's the other thing. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what the intentions were and you don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, say that Ray Don Chong, you know, saw it, didn't see it, thought it was great, thought it was going to be problematic, thought it was going to be, you know, beneficial. Who knows? Mm. Whatever the comments are, there's been a conversation even amongst the actors that they feel that they've been, you know, attacked heavily for this film, which, you know, they felt had, uh, was trying to say something important. I just think it's one of those where just again, and I think it's because we talk about these kinds of things a lot. I think it's just interesting to go back and see that this is something that everybody went. Yeah. Let's We're do okay it. with this. We're okay with this. Yeah. For those of you who are not aware of soul man, first off, consider yourself lucky. I will give a brief description of the movie at the very end of the show. In case you wish to remain blissfully unaware of this cinematic travesty. And once again, I am so grateful to Ross for spending some time with me to talk about our shared passions. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll talk again on the 16th when our next episode about the Beverly Center Cinemas, the first Megaplex Theater in America, is released. July 16th would have been the 40th anniversary of the theater's opening, which would change the trajectory of movie going for the next 40 years, had it not been closed in 2010. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website at filmjerk.com for extra materials about the movies we've covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Okay, Soul Man, here we go. 1980s teen heartthrob, C. Thomas Howell stars as Mark, a rich kid who's been accepted to Harvard Law School only to find out his father has decided to withdraw all financial support for his son. When the horrible prospect of having to pay to attend one of the most prestigious law schools in the country himself, Mark decides to apply for a scholarship, or more specifically, a scholarship meant to be for an African-American student. So Mark, with the help of his best friend, decides to take an unhealthy amount of tanning pills to appear to be darker skinned than the very white kid he is. At school, he meets and falls for one of his classmates, an African-American single mother who was originally supposed to get the scholarship Mark received and now must work to help support herself and her young child while also going to law school. Mark begins to regret what he's done, but soon finds himself dealing with the same kinds of racial stereotyping and prejudice that many African-American males were then, and still are today, dealing with. The producer of the film, Steve Tisch, would defend the making of the film by comparing it to Tootsie, which used comedy to explore sexual stereotypes, while Soul Man was trying to, and I am directly quoting him here, explode racial stereotyping. And it didn't work. It's a horrible movie, and it's one that should be avoided at all costs. Good night.